Open up your Bibles, if you would, to two places, Exodus chapter 2 and Acts chapter 7. I had no idea when we started the Sermon of Stephen that it would take us this long and that it would take us through the whole Old Testament. Did you? I guess I should have. <laughs> well, you're hearing it this time. So, I'm gonna, we're going to be in this chapter for a lot longer than I anticipated, but there's nothing wrong with that. And by the way, we did Abraham, a study of Abraham was a jet tour, but we did years ago study Abraham's life in great detail. And I went back on the tape table to see how many messages we spent on Abraham, and there were 22. And they are available if you would like a study of Abraham, and his life was packed full of lots of tests. His life was one test after another test, and he passed most of them. Do you know that's what life is all about? Tests. Have you noticed that? Do you pass most of them? He, he did. Yeah, <laughs> I could probably say no to. I try. But anyway, that is available if you'd like to do it on the side or something. But um, 22 messages on the life of Abraham. I didn't do Joseph. I told you that last week, so I don't have anything available except that jet tour through his life that we took last week. Today we're going to have a train ride, right? <laughs> Not quite a jet tour. This is going to be a slow train ride through the life of Moses. So we'll probably be talking about him for weeks to come. This is lesson number 20 in our study of the early church through the book of Acts, the message of Stephen, part three, and I have subtitled today's lesson, Moses the Deliverer Delivered. Now, in our last lesson, we heard Stephen speak of his belief in the God who had providentially orchestrated all of the events concerning Joseph, who was the nation's first physical deliverer. His life was full of evidence of the providence of God. Do you know what another definition of history is besides the fact that history is his story? I found this in the front of my Bible and I had written it there years ago and I don't even know who said this but it's not original with me. History is the illustrated encyclopedia of God's providence. That is really good, because that is true. History is the illustrated encyclopedia of God's providence. We surely saw that through the life of Moses. I mean, Joseph. We will see it, too, in the life of Moses. Well, so last week, if you weren't here, I really recommend that you get that message and share it with people. You know what we're supposed to be learning from our study of the early church? Because they were on fire and they turned their world upside down. What are we supposed to be learning as the 21st century? How to be like they were. And what did Stephen do to, to witness? And Paul followed his precedent. When you, we're not going to do the life of Paul, but he, he learned from Stephen and he did the very same thing. Whenever he had an opportunity to preach, you know what he pre preached? He preached types in the Old Testament of Jesus Christ, just like Stephen did. So what are we supposed to be doing in the church today? Exactly what we're doing here, teaching the types, the picture types of Jesus that were in the Old Testament, because that's what solidifies your faith in who he is, right? Are you hearing that in your churches? I don't know, some of you come to me and say, I've never heard that before. And what I'm saying is, why not? That's what 
brings the Bible alive, doesn't it? When you see how what a perfect picture Joseph was, that's not just coincidence. And what a perfect picture Moses is going to be. So that's what I was speaking to me. I was thinking, we need to be hearing more about the picture types of Christ in our churches, just like the first century church did. Well, so he, um, what, what Stephen did with just a few strokes of his brush and palette was that he painted a very clear picture of jo Joseph wearing the face of Jesus. How could the Sanhedrin council not recognize the similarities between what their patriarchs of the faith had done to Joseph and what they had just recently done with Jesus? Had they not envied the obvious favor of, his, of the father upon his life? Did they not envy him for his popularity with the people? Had they not hated him for his goodness? Didn't they hate Jesus without a cause, just like the brothers hated Joseph? Had they not mocked him for his divine revelation to them? Was he not like Joseph betrayed and sold for just a handful of silver and turned over to the Gentiles so that they could rid themselves of him? And did they not also deceive Israel into thinking that he was dead, just as Israel's sons had deceived him into thinking that Joseph was dead? So many similarities. In the first 16 verses of his sermon, Stephen had covered Israel's history from Abraham in Mesopotamia to Joseph in Egypt. And even, if you look at verse 16, we really didn't talk about that last week, but he also talked about their history all the way to the bones of the patriarchs lying in Shechem. Of, do you know where Shechem is? Was, is still? Samaria. So Abraham in Mesopotamia, Joseph in Egypt, all the way to the patriarchs' bones lying in Samaria? Of all places? You know, the Jews would not even walk through Samaria. That's how much they hated the Samaritans because the Samaritans were mixed blood. And, you know, they had, uh, they had uh, intermarried with the Assyrians when they had conquered northern, the northern uh, Israel years ago. So they did not like the Samaritans. And so they would actually walk all the way around. If they were going from Galilee to, uh, I mean, from uh, Judea to Galilee, they'd walk all the way around. But Jesus didn't. When he took a trip, what did he do? He must needs pass through Samaria because there were Samaritans there that needed to be saved. Remember, Sychar, the woman at the well? Anyway, isn't it interesting that Stephen is pointing out in verse 16, your patriarchs are buried in Samaria where you won't even set foot. What hypocrites. Well, so that was the first 16 verses. Now, in the next seven, uh, 27 verses, Stephen covered Israel's history from the time of the birth of Moses all the way to the Babylonian captivity. You'll notice he mentions that in verse 43. Now, as Stephen did with Joseph, who was Israel's first deliverer, and the most remarkable prophetic type or picture that we have of Jesus... He also did with the next historical deliverer of Israel's history, who was Moses. Now, he too is a picture of Jesus, not quite as remarkable as Joseph, but he was a deliverer type in many, many ways, as we'll see in today and in the weeks to come. Now, the Jews would certainly not interrupt Stephen as he is talking about Moses, because from Adam to that day, they thought of no man more highly than they did Moses. 
820 times the name of Moses is found in the Bible. They thought of him so highly. Now, he, they shouldn't have thought of him as the most remarkable man of, until their day, should they? Who should have been the most remarkable? Who had come and gone? Jesus. But, you know, Stephen's standing before them, and they still think of Moses as the most wonderful man that had ever existed. Jesus was. Moses was just, you know, he said, there will be a prophet like unto me who will come. He'll be far greater than me. There was also another man who actually Jesus himself said was a greater man than Moses. And who was he? John the Baptist, you got that right. Why was John the Baptist greater than even Moses or Abraham? According to the Lord. Because he was the one. It wasn't because of his person. It was because of his position. He was the one who introduced Israel to her Messiah. That's why he was the greatest man to that point. But then Jesus came along and he was the greatest ever in all of history. Well, Joseph had delivered Israel from starvation, right? From the famine. He, he delivered Israel by bringing her into Egypt. Actually, God brought her into Egypt, but you know, he sent Joseph ahead of, ahead of things so he could prepare the way. And that was great. That was wonderful. But that, the part of that story that they didn't like, the Jews didn't like, is that it eventually led to their enslavement in Egypt. So poor Joseph, they usually equated him with being in Egypt, and that led them to thinking about their enslavement. But actually, unfortunately, that had been the consequence. Their enslavement in Egypt had been the consequence of their forefathers' complacency there in Egypt. They just got too comfortable in Egypt. You know when they should have left Egypt? When? Think about it. Right, as soon as the famine was over, they should have left. But instead, they got comfortable there. They liked garlic and leeks. <laughs> and, um, and so they stayed. They, they over, have you ever had company that overstays their welcome? Pretty soon they start stinking like fish, right? That's exactly what happened. They should have returned. Um, Nonetheless, Joseph, in the minds of the Jewish people, Joseph was always connected with thoughts of their troubled history in Egypt, even though it wasn't his fault at all. On the other hand, Moses had led Israel's uh, um, forefathers out of Egypt. He was their God-sent deliverer out of Egypt, right? Joseph took them into Egypt, basically God did, but nonetheless, so Moses was their big hero. They liked that story. They liked that a whole lot better. However, again, once again, they did not realize how much the account of Moses, their most famous deliverer of all time, the one through whom they had received the old covenant law, they did not realize how much his life and his whole story matched their deliverer Messiah, who had just come bringing them the new covenant. Now again, the whole concept of pictured types of their long-awaited long, their long Messiah being given prophetically by God in the Old Testament scriptures was, um, and, and through even some of their most historical figures, all, that concept is completely new to the Jews to whom Stephen is speaking. They had never, ever seen picture types in people or maybe not even in things like the Passover lamb and Noah's Ark, you know, like we talked about last week. They didn't see all that. 
And so this is a brand new concept to them. To think about all the similarities between now how um, Joseph's brothers had treated him and how they, the religious rulers, had just treated Jesus and to be reminded of the consequences that befell their patriarchs because of their mistreatment of uh, Joseph, their brother. All of this is just too fresh in the council members' minds because Stephen has just presented it, you know, in a few verses. Took us a whole lesson, but he just did it in a few quick verses. And they haven't, can you imagine, their, they haven't fully absorbed it yet. They will by the time he gets to the end of the sermon, but they're still, it's still computing. And so what does he do? He doesn't give them a whole lot of time, and he really essentially does the whole thing all over again by way of his quick narration, this time, of the life of Moses. And again, the similarities between Moses and Jesus are nothing short of having been divinely orchestrated. Uh, I think you're going to see that by the time we finish just even this morning's lesson, which will only cover the first 40 years of Moses' life. Uh, as with the life of Joseph, Joseph, Moses presents a prophetic picture not only of the Lord Jesus Christ as Israel's only spiritual deliverer, but the life of Moses also presents a picture of his two comings. Didn't we see that with Joseph? First time he came, he was rejected. He was betrayed and sold and to the gent turned over to the Gentiles, totally rejected by his own. Second time, they fall before him. They bowed the knee and declared him to be their savior, right? We're going to see the same thing in the life of Moses. Took two, two times. First time they rejected him. Who made you to be a ruler and a judge over us? Second time they accept him. A lot in there. Isn't that interesting? Already. So put on your Christ-colored glasses because we're going to take, as I said, a train ride, not a jet tour. We're going to take a train ride starting today, all aboard, starting today, and we're going to look at the life of Moses, which I don't know how many lessons it will take. I cannot predict the future. Today will be one. I know it's going to take at least two, maybe three lessons, maybe four. Who knows how bogged down I get in the life of Moses. But I promise all of us it will be worth the journey. All right, so let's, we're going to be, now we left the period. He's, Stephen has finished talking about the period of the patriarchs, and he's moving into the period in Israel's history of Moses and the law. First of all, Moses. And what I've done is I've divided that section into two parts, Israel's dilemma. We're going to look at Israel's dilemma after 400 years in Egypt, and then we're going to start our look at Israel's deliverer. You'll see the outline when you get it on email later on, maybe today. I've still got a lot of work to do on it. All right, so let's look at Acts 7, verses 17 to 19. It says, in verse 17, Stephen was still, you know, giving his sermon. He says, but when the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, and you'll see that promise he mentioned back up in 6, verse 6 and 7. It's talking about the promise God had made that Abraham's seed would sojourn in a strange land. They would be there in bondage for 400 years. So he says in verse 17, when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose, which knew not Joseph. Now that word in the Greek, another, is another of a different kind. In Exodus, it says he was a new king had a different perspective on things than the ones who went before him. And, of course, we know we're talking about pharaohs. You can call him a pharaoh or a king. 
Okay, another Pharaoh arose, which knew not Joseph. The same dealt subtly or craftily or shrewdly with our kindred and evil entreated our fathers so that they cast out their young children to the end they might not live. Okay, now you do have yourself positioned in Exodus. So when I go to Exodus, you can flip over there real quickly. All right. Okay, God had told Abraham back in verse 6 that his descendants... This is before Abraham even had a child. He didn't even have, you know, he's old. Sarah was beyond childbearing years. They had no children, but God promised him seed, and he said that eventually his descendants would be sojourners in a strange land where they would be brought into bondage and entreated evilly for 400 years. That had not probably been very good news for Abraham to hear, you know, especially since he didn't have any children, and he's hearing that one day they're going to be slaves. Not too good. But God also, with that prediction, had given a promise. And the promise was that he would judge the nation to whom they would be in bondage. Now, here's a question. Did he? Did he keep his promise? Did he judge Egypt for the, the bondage they had put in Israel into? Yes. Through Moses and the ten plagues. And also by drowning Israel's entire, I mean, uh, Egypt's army. So she was judged for it. He did, he did keep his promise. God had also promised Abraham that his descendants would be brought forth from the nation of their bondage to serve him in the land, in Israel. That's in the, at the end of verse 7 of Acts 7. Uh, now, in order to bring his people into the land he had promised them, he's going to need a deliverer. So the time of the promise that God had given to Abraham. She said they would be in Egypt for 400 years. That time was near at hand. And God does not forget or break his promises. Never, ever. All of the original patriarchs, all the 12 sons of Jacob, Jacob himself and all his sons, were dead and gone. The time had moved on. Pharaohs had come and gone. While the people of Israel grew and multiplied, in Egypt. And that was tolerated for a while as the succeeding pharaohs, to the pharaoh who had lifted Joseph out of the prison and brought him to his right hand, you know, because of his dreams and, and his wisdom, that pharaoh, you know, was gone. But the pharaohs who succeeded him were still grateful for that one time Hebrew slave who had saved their own nation from perishing in that notorious famine. They remained grateful to him for a while and passed that gratefulness along to his people living over in Goshen. But with the passing of time, as happens, right, each the generations forget so fast. I was listening to the news last night, and I can't believe some of the young people in our country or even some of the older people who are so ignorant of our history. They were asking them, who was our first president? They didn't have a clue. Oh, my. I mean, they're just out to lunch, so many of them. They don't know what's going on. By the way, if you don't know, his, George, his name was George. <laughs> George Washington. Oh, me. So with the passing of time, you know, another king came to power. And he didn't know Joseph. But the implication there is that he didn't really care about the one-time prime minister who had saved Egypt. This new king 
did not like the fast growth of the shepherd Hebrews. And that's what they were. You know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they were all shepherds. Their sons were shepherds. Remember, that's where they were. When Joseph went out, they were shepherding. Um, and so the Egyptians considered shepherds as low-class, unsophisticated um, people compared to their highly advanced culture and society, which they did have. Egypt was way ahead of its time. I was thinking about if the Egyptians had our modern technology, there's no telling what they could have done. The pyramids, they're still amazed and have no idea how they possibly could have made those. They're just phenomenal. So they were way advanced in astronomy and in uh, geometry and you name it. They were advanced for they, their day. They were a highly civilized cult. Well, not civilized with what they did, but um, advanced educationally or however, and they look down their noses. Isn't it amazing? It just always just makes me sick to my stomach how everyone, every group of people thinks they're better than another group of people. So they look down their noses at these shepherd Hebrews. It actually says in Genesis 47, 34, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So there you go. The new Pharaoh did not like them. And he did not like the fertility of their women and the fast growth of their people. A small family of some 75 people who had come from Israel, you know, that was really no concern. But when their numbers grew to over one million, they began to pose a threat, or so Pharaoh thought. It was like having a nation within a nation. And we do see that that's a threat today, isn't it? Over in European countries, they have nations building within nations. That's dangerous. We have it happening here too. Wake up. And if Hebrew, the Hebrews, who were over a million, going toward two million, if they would ally themselves with one of Israel's foes, I mean uh, Egypt's foes, then Egypt could be attacked from without and from within, which is what we have going on in the world. We've got ISIS and the radical Islamist terrorists outside, and they're growing lone wolves and communities inside. And, it, and it's a dangerous position. Now, it wasn't to the Pharaoh, because the, it, the Jews had no intention of doing anything harmful, but he was concerned. And so here's something that is so interesting, because this is still happening today. There's nothing new. The growth of Israel became the grief of Egypt. Hmm. The growth of Israel became the grief of Egypt, and this has been the attitude of the world ever since. Egypt, remember, in the Bible's pictures, the world. The world still does not like the growth of Israel. That new pharaoh became the first anti-Semitic ruler. And he began to deal shrewdly with the Jewish race by oppressing them with harsh taskmasters who were given orders, this is in Exodus 1.11, they were given orders to afflict the Jewish people, the Hebrews, with burdens, with their burdens. He took care, great care, to keep them poor. And he charged them with heavy taxes, which was part of their burdens. However, the more affliction that was put on them, the more the Hebrews multiplied and grew which caused the Egyptians to then increase their severity against them. It says in verse 14, they made their lives bitter with hard bondage. 
That's why they eat bitter herbs on their Seder, Passover Seder, to remind them of the bitterness in their bondage. And still, the, the Hebrews multiplied. They were like rabbits. They just kept multiplying. After all, who was looking after them? The true God, not the many false gods of the Egyptians. He was the one. God was the one who was seeing to their high fertility rate and their high birth rate. The evil Pharaoh was trying to break their spirits. He was trying to destroy their health. He was trying to keep them so exhausted that they would not be quite so reproductive. He was doing his best to discourage them from even wanting to have children in the first place because who, you know, he was hoping they wouldn't want to have a child who had the miserable prospect of, of a life of harsh slavery. And so what he was doing, he was actually seeking to cut off the eventual existence of Israel. Does that sound familiar? Oh, yes. But his plan didn't work, and it never will work. Never, ever, ever will it work. I can't wait till we get to the burning bush and I tell you what the burning bush is. Anyway, his plan didn't work because like Joseph, just like Joseph, the Lord was with the Hebrews even in the pit of their betrayal. They had been betrayed by the Egyptians and he was with them even in the prison of their bondage. And they continued to prosper. So the Pharaoh's heart went pure evil. Reminds me of that next Pharaoh when you know, Moses appears before him and says, let my people go. Remember how his heart got harder and harder and harder and harder? Well, this Pharaoh is a different Pharaoh. His heart now turns pure wicked evil. And he gave an order to the Hebrew midwives who attended to the deliveries of the Hebrew women. And these were probably the two Hebrew midwives in charge of all the Hebrew midwives, okay? Because there would be not just two, probably be many, because they were multiplying so fast, they needed a lot of midwives. Now, these two women are heroes. Their names were Shipra and Pua. How would you like to have the name Pua? <laughs> How are you doing today, Pua? Mighty Pua. <laughs> Couldn't help that. So he gave, a, he gave an order to these two midwives to kill, that's evil, to kill every newborn Jewish baby boy. He was going to exterminate the seed of Abraham. That's called infanticide, by the way. Baby girls could live, Jewish baby girls could live because, you know, being short of males when they would come of age to marry, what would they be forced to do? intermarry with the Egyptian men and pretty soon the race of the Hebrews would be non-existent. It would just, you know, amalgamate with everyone else. That, that was such a cowardly, satanic plan, wasn't it? Instead of sending their men, the Egyptian soldiers, to fight against the adult male Hebrew men, instead they, they revert to killing the innocents. Well, I guess the Egyptian men didn't want to fight against the Hebrew men because the Hebrew men were pretty buff after all the, that work they had, you know, <laughs> building all that they built in the cities of Ramesses and another one, what is it called, uh, uh, Python, and all the hard work. They, they got strong. And so they didn't want to fight them. So what do, what do they do? They say, kill the babies. 
you know what? That is a sin. That is a sin that brings eventual doom to every nation that engages in it. The slaughter of the innocents. No wonder one of the, pl the last plague on Egypt was the taking of their firstborn children. Er doom on every nation that kills the innocents. And if we think bad about this Pharaoh, what should we think of our nation? Do you know since Roe versus Wade in 1963, and yesterday I accidentally said, I called it Woe versus Raid. And the more I thought about that, I thought that was a God slip. Because woe on our nation for raiding 57 million babies have been aborted in this land since 1963. Do we need to repent as a nation? Are we going to be judged for that? Oh yes, we are already being judged for that. However, once again, Pharaoh's plan was thwarted because those two brave midwives... Shipra and Pua feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. Praise the Lord. I thought of Peter and the apostles who said in Acts 5.29, we ought to obey God rather than men. Therefore, they did, excuse me, they did not kill the Hebrew baby boys. And you know what? God blessed them for their disobedience because it is more important to obey God than men, when man's commandments conflict with God's. Of course he blessed them. He blessed them, it says, I don't know what the verse is, but he blessed, oh yeah, there it is, uh, verse 21 of Exodus 1. He blessed them with houses, which actually means with families of their own. They became fruitful themselves. Of course he blessed them. Hadn't he promised Abraham that he would bless them that bless Israel? Genesis 12, 3. Is that verse still in the Bible? Does God keep his promises? Let me tell America another lesson we need to learn, and we need to learn it really fast. If we turn our backs on the Jewish people and on Israel, we are also doomed. Two things most important to be praying for, that they would override woe versus raid, and that we would never fail to keep Israel's back, that we would always be her ally, and praise the Lord that in, they've invited Benjamin Netanyahu to speak before Congress because if there's one man we need to listen to, it's that man. I'm sorry for preaching, but I feel very strongly for this because of, I, I love this nation. I love this nation, and I see the spiral downward, and I'm worried about my children and my grandchildren. And what's going to happen? Because God keeps his promises. Well, the Lord continued in spite of that. Well, thank God for these midwives who would not obey. And so the Lord continued to rapidly multiply the Jewish population. It says in Exodus 1.20, they waxed very mightily. And finally, Pharaoh changed his, uh, charged his own people, not just his soldiers, but he charged all the Egyptian people to kill every baby boy born to the Hebrews. So the Egyptians, you know, they'd be listening for a baby to cry in somebody's house or looking at a Hebrew woman to see if she was showing. And isn't that awful? Here's what Dr. John Phillips says about it. He says, Goshen became a ghetto. The Nile was Pharaoh's gas chamber. The crocodiles, and the Nile's filled with crocodiles. The crocodiles, his means of disposing of the bodies. 
It is hard to think of a reign of terror more heartless. Imagine the horror and the heartache in every Hebrew home at the prospect of their newborn sons being torn away by a member of Pharaoh's Gestapo and flung living or dead into the Nile. No wonder another one of the plagues on Egypt was that he turned the Nile to blood. They had already done that. It doesn't take a lot of looking under the surface to know that the one who was using this new king with an evil heart as his human pawn to destroy the people from whom would come the promised seed of the woman, the one who would crush his head with a fatal blow, doesn't take long to figure out that the one behind Pharaoh was who? The great red dragon of Revelation chapter 12, who is seen standing continuously before the woman who is about to deliver her child. Who is the woman? Israel. Israel is the woman. All during the Old Testament. You know what the Old Testament is all about? It's all about Satan trying to destroy, destroy the messianic lineage so that the child would never get here. And, on the other hand, it's God's providential hand protecting that messianic line. That's what it's all about. Good versus evil. Satan trying to destroy the messianic line. God protecting it. One, at one point in time, it was down to one child. One child save the messianic line. Well, even when Satan failed and the Christ child was born, he set about to kill him by using yet another evil king, just like Pharaoh. Satan used another evil king who had no right to be a ruler over the Jewish people, and his name was Herod the Great. You see, he was not a descendant of Jacob. Who was he a descendant of? Esau. He had no right, like Pharaoh, reigning over the Jewish people. And that horrible usurper was nothing more than another self-centered puppet of the evil usurper of this world, Satan. Like Pharaoh, he also gave a command to slaughter the innocents, didn't he? The innocence of where? Of Bethlehem. If Pharaoh had succeeded in his satanically motivated plan to kill all the male Jewish boys, the messianic line would have perished from existence. However, as God had orchestrated the escape of Mary and Joseph with the Christ child from the edict of Herod, so had he many centuries previous orchestrated the escape of another little Jewish boy. The saving of Moses, you see, was necessary to deliver his people from being absorbed into Egypt, the world. The Jews needed to stay a separate people. That's why God gave them all their laws and, and everything, so they'd keep separate from the rest of the world, so that from them, the one whom Moses tip, typified, the spiritual deliverer of the world, could come just exactly as God had promised. So that was Israel's dilemma. Now let's look at Israel's deliverer. The condensed account of Moses' life given by Stephen in Acts 7 makes it easy for us to know how God outlined his life. We had a little more, it's a little more difficult to know how God outlined Joseph's life because you have to get all the way to the end of Genesis and find out that Joseph outlined his own life by way of the names of his two sons. We talked about that last week. Wasn't that cool? That was neat. Um, but Moses's life is really easy to outline because it's given in three sets of 40. He lived to be 120 years old and he had a life in three sets of 40. 
Okay? Look at verse, well, if you're in Acts 7, you can look at verse 23 of Acts 7. I circled 40 on the, and that, and then in verse 30, it mentions 40. In verse 36, it mentions 40, and in verse 42, it mentions 40. So four times we have the word 40 in that one sermon about Moses. Now, the number 40 in Scripture, you know, numbers in Scripture are important. They're significant. The number 40 in the Scripture is the number of testing and trials. That's why when you hit 40, it's a big test, it's a big trial. <laughs> It's like downhill from here, right? It rained for how many days before in the flood? How many days? 40 days and 40 nights. How many days did Israel spy out the land? 40 days. That was a big test for them. They failed that test. Only two men didn't fail that test. But they spied the land out for 40 days. How many years did Israel wander in the wilderness? 40 years. How many days did Goliath taunt Israel? You got it, 40, 40 days. How many days did Jesus spend in the wilderness? 40 days and 40 nights. Now, considering that Moses' life was definitely a life full of trials and testings, it's very appropriate that he had three such 40-year divisions. And they were, his first 40 years lived in Egypt. And that's in verses 20 to 28 of Acts 7. He talks about Moses' life in Egypt. Then the second 40 were spent in the land of Midian, on the backside of the desert. That's in verses 29 to 35 of Stephen's sermon. And his last 40 years, which was after he delivered the Israelites from Egypt, cross over the Red Sea, then he spent the next 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Poor Moses never set foot in the land of Israel. First 40 years in Egypt. In Egypt, he was learning to be a somebody. Okay, he was in the palace and he was getting educated by the Egyptians and he was learning to be a ruler. He was learning how to be a somebody. In the next 40 years, on the backside of the, not even the desert, the backside of the desert, God was t teaching him how to be a nobody. The last 40 years of his life, he was showing, God was showing Moses that he can take a nobody and make him into a somebody. Important, first of all, that you learn that you're a nobody before he can make you into a somebody. So Moses never set foot in Israel. Not one toe in Israel. So I guess if he had been alive at the time of Caiaphas and his little cronies, his little crowd, they would have considered him a second-class Jew, right? Hmm. All right, let's look at his first 40, verses 20 to 22. This doesn't conclude his first 40, but we're going to start it, okay? Oops, I'm in Exodus. Let me go back to Acts. Verses 20 to 22. In which time Moses was born and was exceeding fair and nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. Notice that, for her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and in deeds. He was learning how to be a somebody. <laughs> now, his first words that Stephen spoke about Moses. Now, remember, he is going from defending himself against the charge that he had blasphemed God. He did that in the first part. I didn't blaspheme God. I believe in the sovereignty of God as shown in the life of Abraham. I believe in the providence of God as shown in the life of Joseph. And now he's moving on to defend himself against the charge that he had blasphemed Moses. And the first thing out of Stephen's mouth is that 
Moses was exceeding fair, which means, and you might have this in your Bible even, in the Greek it actually means exceeding good to God. Stephen would never, what he's telling the council here, is that he would never ever blaspheme one who God declared to be good. Now in Exodus 2.2, it says that when Moses' mother saw him, she saw right away that he was a goodly child. And in Hebrews 11.23, the faith chapter of the Bible, it says that Moses was a proper child. All of those phrases speak uh, of more than just his physical appearance. Yes, he was likely a very beautiful little baby boy, fair, beautiful. I got to thinking maybe he had a little glow on his face like he would have later on. There was something very attractive about this boy, and that would be providentially used by God to attract him to Pharaoh, his daughter, right? So that was going to be used, his beauty. But these phrases are speaking about more than just his appearance. It was evident to his God-fearing parents that he was lovely in the sight of God. Repeatedly, Moses himself, in his writings in the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, used the word good. He used that word good in reference to something or someone being made of God being given by God or being declared good by God. For example, we find the word good used many times in Genesis 1 and 2. After God created something, he stepped back, looked at it, and says, said, and it was good. Finally, when he, when he created woman, he said it was very good. <laughs> I'm not making it up. It's there. <laughs> So Moses was, was, was good. He was exceeding good in the sight of God is what that really means. You see, what it's telling us is that every child is created by God from the moment of his or her conception, and they are all good in his sight. Every single child from the womb. David said, you've known me from my mother's womb. Every child, even in cases of rape. Every child created by God, is good in his sight. Amram, Amram, I'm sorry, Amram was Moses' father, and his mother was, what was her name? Jochebed, right? Okay, did you know that Jochebed was Amram, her husband's aunt? (laughs) That's in the Bible, yes, she was his aunt. Well, I had an aunt who was only a year older than me, so I guess, you know, I'm thinking way older, but anyway, they were aunt and nephew, but they were also husband and wife. They were both from the tribe of Levi, which is interesting. I got to thinking about that. They're from the tribe of Levi. Now, Jacob said Levi stunk in his sight because he was a bad guy. He killed a lot of people. But as of yet, there is no Levitical priesthood, but there will be because God takes that which man meant for good, bad, and, and he turns it to good. So because of Moses and his brother Aaron, Aaron became the first one of the Aaronic priesthood. The Aaronic priesthood came from the Levitical priesthood. Isn't that neat? Anyway, Moses' life and his parents, they were both from the tribe of Levi, and Levi would become the tribe of the priests. So, you know, God forgave their sins, just like God forgives all of our sins, right? Okay, so I want to set that straight. Even if you've had an abortion, God forgives. God forgives. He forgives everything. But they understood. When they looked at baby Moses, they understood just as when they looked at Miriam when she was born and as they looked at Aaron. Aaron was three years older than Moses, so we're figuring maybe Miriam was about seven or eight. She was the oldest. 
They knew that they were all good in his sight. Every child is a gift from above. Every child is a gift from above from the Father of lights, and they refused to put him to death, no matter what the king had ordered. Now, here's something interesting. Do you know that Moses' name in Hebrew wasn't Moses? Do you know what his name given by his father on his eighth day of existence was when they circumcised him? His Hebrew name was Joachim. Now, that would change things, right? You start talking to somebody about Joachim? Yeah. Who's that? That was his Hebrew name, and you know what it means? Established by God. They got it. They knew he was special. He was established by God, and they determined their best to save him. Now, the author of Hebrews tells us that the faith of Moses' parents outweighed their fear of the king's commandment. And so they kept the child hidden as long as they could in their home, Miriam and Aaron helping them out to keep the baby quiet. As soon as he started crying, put the pacifier in his mouth. I probably, I don't know what they did for pacifiers in that day, but, you know, they kept him well-fed, and they hid him, and, you know... For three months, they could get away with that. But once three, you know, a child gets louder and louder and bigger and bigger, and it became more and more difficult for them to hide. Um, because unlike Aaron, his three-year-older brother, he had been, Moses had been born under the edict of the, of the new pharaoh to throw every Hebrew boy into the Nile River. Wouldn't it be wonderful, I got to thinking, wouldn't it be absolutely wonderful if every parent today in the whole wide world understood that every child is good in the sight of God. Wouldn't that be great? You know what an abortion is? An abortion is a refusal to see children as God sees them. The abortionist vacuum and the abortionist scalpel is absolutely no different than the Nile and its crocodiles. Now, it's interesting that in the first chapter in Scripture about Moses, which is Exodus chapter 2, first chapter we ever hear about Moses, there are three events given to give us a hint of the fact that this man was going to be a deliverer. In Exodus 2, verses 1 to 10, there is a divinely ordained, the, the event of the divinely ordained deliverance of Moses himself. This is why I call this lesson, the uh, deliverer delivered. We find out how Moses himself was delivered from the murderous desires of the evil king, as Jesus was delivered from Herod. And then in verses 11 to 15 of Exodus chapter 2, we have the account of Moses' first attempt to deliver his Hebrew brethren from their oppression under the evil Egyptian taskmasters. Well, didn't the Lord Jesus do likewise? Did he not come to earth the first time to deliver his brothers from their oppression under this world's evil taskmaster named Satan? Didn't Jesus come to earth to deliver the Hebrew people and actually the whole world from the evil taskmaster Satan, but more specifically to deliver his own brothers the Jews, who at that time were under other oppressors, not the Egyptians, but that time the, uh, the Romans. And then in Exodus 2, verses 16-25, there is the record of Moses delivering the seven daughters of the chief of Midian from cruel shepherds who had driven them away from the watering well, which was an event that got Moses his Gentile bride. Zipporah. 
You see, Jesus did not just come into this world to deliver his Jewish brothers. He also came to deliver his Gentile bride from the false shepherds of this world who had tried to keep them from the living water of life found in the true deliverer promised by God for all of Adam's race. That'll be in your notes if you didn't get to observe it all, get it, absorb it all. But it's fascinating. The first chapter gives us another picture of Christ. Well, Stephen didn't bother to tell his listeners the details of Moses' deliverance as a child. Why? Why didn't he give them the details? All right, they knew it like the back of their hand. They knew the story very well. They probably had it memorized. But for our purposes, we do want to review it. Now, the account itself, as I just said, is found in Exodus 2, verses 1 to 10. This is the deliverer delivered. <laughs> and when it became too, too difficult, too, too dangerous to hide Joachim any longer, Jochebed made an ark of bulrushes, which is, she made a little ark out of papyrus reed. And she covered it with slime and pitch. In other words, she waterproofed it. And she placed her beloved little three-month-old baby son. How difficult would this be to do? She placed him in in that little basket, that little ark, and she put him in the very place where all the little Jewish baby boys were drowned. Wow. I was thinking, I don't think that I would do that. I think I would take him as far away from the crocodiles of the Nile as possible. Don't you think you would do that as a mother? But she was a lot smarter than me. You see, what she did is she put him in the one place she knew the Egyptians would never look for a Jewish baby boy. Because all the mothers would say the same thing. Put him as far from the Nile as you can. So she put him in the Nile. She put him in the very place of death. In the wa- And what do you think, by the way, what do you think gave her the idea to make an ark and cover it with pitch like she did? to save her little baby, to try to save her little baby boy from the waters (laughs) and judgment. I think in her mind she went back to Noah and the flood and said, I'm going to try to do what Noah did. So she made a little ark. It was a good idea, good plan. Worked for Noah, worked for Moses. (laughs) So she put him in the very place of death and that um, in that little waterproofed ark, she set her baby, it tells us in Exodus 2, in the reeds at the river's edge. That too was very smart because that would prevent, the reeds would prevent the ark from floating away. And then she sent maybe seven, eight-year-old Miriam to watch the ark to see what would happen to the child. Now Exodus 2-3 is the only place that the Hebrew word for ark appears other than in reference to Noah's ark. Now, Noah's ark, we know, was a picture and type of Jesus, the one way of safety from judgment upon the world. It was by faith, the faith of Moses' parents, that he was kept hidden for three months and that he was placed in a waterproof ark. They did that all by faith, trusting in God. Just as it was by faith that Noah and his family entered into the ark before the rains began. And just as it is by faith that we enter into the security of Christ 
and are brought safely out of the place of death in the world and the flood here. Um, Moses was brought out of that place of death in Egypt, which pictures the world and the Nile, wasn't he? He was rescued. We'll talk about that in a minute. He was brought up out of that place of bloody death right into the palace. Noah was brought out of the place of death in the world and the flood to the safety of the mountaintop of Ararat. And the Lord Jesus was brought out of the place of death and the deep waters of the floods that overflowed him, as he himself described in Psalm 69. You know, the floods are overcoming as he's on the cross. And he too rose right up into the palace, didn't he? Moses rose to the palace from the bloody waters of death, we could say. Again, a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And a picture of what happens with us. When we're in Christ, one day we too will rise out of the pit of this earth, where? To the palace of heaven. So how was Moses saved from death in the Nile? How was he saved from death? Well, of course, again, by the providential protective hand of God himself. His providence was as much at work in lifting Moses from the pit of death and putting him in the palace as it had been in the life of Joseph. If Moses had spent much time in the ark, now he's only three months old, if he had spent very much time in that ark, what would have happened? He would have either died of starvation uh, or dehydration, or he would have been a meal for the crocodiles. And think about this. If a Hebrew had come along and found him, found the child, he would not take the risk of saving him at the expense of risking his own life for disobeying Pharaoh's edict. If an Egyptian had found the child, his inclination would be to cast the child into the Nile, either out of fear to disobey Pharaoh or just out of plain prejudice and callousness towards the Hebrew people. He would have seen that child and known instantly it was a Hebrew child. You do know that, right? The Egyptians didn't put their babies in the, <laughs> in the Nile River. Plus, think of this, Moses was circumcised, so if they took a look, they would know he was a Hebrew child. There was only one individual in the entire land of Egypt who could get away with defying the king's order and take the boy into a place of complete safety. And where was that place of complete safety? The humor of it all is that it was Pharaoh's palace, the one who issued the edict. There was only one person in all Egypt who would dare to defy the edict. Just like in Joseph's life, there was only one person in all of Egypt who could have taken him out of the prison and put him in the palace. And that was Pharaoh himself, right? Well, who was this one person who would dare to defy the Pharaoh's edict? His own daughter. His own daughter, the princess. She just happened to be, you know, the one who saw baby Moses. You think it just happened? to be that way. It's so fascinating. I was last, last week I was crying as I was studying Joseph's life. This week I was laughing over and over again at how, how amazingly humorous all of this is. It just so happened that Pharaoh's daughter, on that particular day that Jochebed set baby Moses afloat, that she, she went down to the river's edge in order to bathe. Maybe she did that every day. Maybe Jochebed was a clever woman very clever woman. Maybe she had checked it out. 
and realized that the Pharaoh's daughter took a bath there every day, and that's where she placed the, the ark. Why would she do that? Wouldn't that be the one woman she wouldn't want to get the child? Hmm, maybe later on in this lesson we'll find out why Jochebed trusted maybe this woman. All right, anyhow, there was something. She went down there, the princess, to take a bath, and something in the reeds caught her eye, so she set her, sent her maids over to investigate to see what it was. They bring back the basket, and it says in Exodus 2, maybe verses 5 and 6, somewhere around there, that when she opened it, now that tells us it had a protective lid to protect the baby from the sun rays, okay? When she opened it and she saw the child, look at this, what does it say next? And behold, that's what behold means in the Bible. You have to clap when you say it. And behold, it's like all of a sudden, at that very moment, when she beheld the child, what happened? The baby wept. Oh, providential crying. Once that baby cried, that fair little glowing, beautiful little baby boy, she was a goner. <laughs> never, they say never has a... Um, a cry been so <laughs> appropriate. Never has a baby's cry been so appropriate. You know, Pharaoh thought, you know, when he got his little guys together and said, let's come up with a crafty, wise plan to destroy the, the Jews. Yeah, he thought they were so crafty. Well, a weeping baby seemed, especially a three-month-old weeping baby, seems pretty helpless, right? And yet the cry of this particular one was so strong that it eventually resulted in bringing great destruction on Egypt. The joke is on you, Pharaoh. All it took was the cry of one little beautiful boy. Thank God for the compassion of women on crying babies. Because if it was up to the men, forget it. When my children were little and crying and as infants, I think my husband had selective hearing. You know how that goes? In the middle of the night. <laughs> Who hears the baby crying? The mom. The mom. And so she said to her maids, this is one of the Hebrews' children. How did she know that? Well, it was pretty easy to figure out. As I already said, if she took a close look, yes, he was circumcised. Did Moses know he was a Hebrew from the beginning? Yes, he did. I know you show your kids that wonderful movie, and every time I see it, I cry, by Disney called The Prince of Egypt. How many of you have seen it? I cry every time I watch it. But it is wrong where they say that Moses didn't discover who he was until later on in life. All he had to do was look at himself. He was circumcised. He was different. He knew his mother raised him in his early childhood. He knew he was Hebrew, okay? We got that straight. And I think I said that wrong last week, so correct me on that. Well, as she looked compassionately on this beautiful little Hebrew boy, probably picking him up to comfort him in his tears, the idea of obeying her father's commandment, Take that crying little boy and throw him to the crocodiles. Suddenly that idea was just totally unthinkable and undoable. No way. This is why the pro-choice crowd does not want a woman who is thinking about abortion to see an ultrasound picture of her child. Right? They try to keep them from seeing the 3D ultrasound picture because when you look at it, what happens? Just like with her. You can't look into the face of a child or the ultrasound picture of a child and want to destroy it unless you are really callous. And so she, you know, she had this little baby and she's wondering, what am I going to do in this predicament? And suddenly, who arrives? 
Now think about how brave Miriam was. She's a young slave girl. Her mother was so clever and had trained her up well. So she, she approaches, and it took a lot of courage for a little slave girl to approach Pharaoh's daughter. And she sees her holding the baby, her brother, little baby brother, and she says, would you like a wet nurse? And that's suddenly the answer for the princess. She says, yes. And so Miriam goes and gets her own mother. <laughs> wow, did Jacobed's faith prove good? Yes, exceeding abundantly. Now let me get, we'll get back to that, but let me give you a little historical information that's going to help us understand why the daughter of the Pharaoh who despised the Hebrews living in his land so much that he wanted to put them into extinction. Why his daughter so readily defied her father's edict and took a Hebrew boy into the palace to be raised as her own son. Not as a toy, but as a son. First of all, as I tell you what I'm going to tell you, I, I do want to say, I preface it with this. I cannot be dogmatic about who exactly was the pharaoh at this time, because there are two schools of thought on it, two theories. One is, and you've probably heard this one, that the pharaoh who issued this edict was Ramesses, Ramesses II. The other theory is that it was Tutmos I. Now, for those who take the Tutmos I, the dates of him, to be more fitting with the history line of scripture, and you know, an early exodus as opposed to a later exodus, and this is getting into waters you don't want to get into, <laughs> that'd be a pun. <laughs> but um, there are these two theories, but if you go with the I, which I tend to do, um, there is something very interesting about him that makes the biblical account of Moses' delivery extremely more enlightening. Now, she named the baby Moses, right? Tutmose, M-O-S-E, was his name. All right, the tradition of the Jews says that Tutmose I had only one child, and she was a daughter. And her name was Hatshepsut. Have you heard of her? She's pretty famous, Hatshepsut. She had no biological children of her own. Not only was she the daughter of a pharaoh, Tutmos I, but she married a pharaoh, Tutmos II. I guess they weren't very original on names back then. <laughs> and he wasn't on the throne very long, only a few years, about four years. <clears throat> he already had a son. The man she married already had a son who was her stepson. He was Tutmos III. <laughs> But her husband only reigned for a few years, and when he died, she seized the throne for herself. And she kept her stepson off of that throne for 21 years, which infuriated him. It's kind of like Queen Elizabeth. I don't think her poor son is ever going to get the throne to you. <laughs> but Thutmose II, her stepson, was just, he hated his mother, but she was powerful, and he could not do anything about it. 
Actually, she would go, she was a feminist way before her time, I'm telling you. She was a pharaohess. She became a pharaohess, if there is such a word. That was her. And she even would put on, when she went out in public, she'd put on one of those little long black beards that they wore, a fake one. She'd put a little fake one on, she dressed like a man. That's <laughs> when she went out into public. I'm not going to go and go there, all right? But anyway... <laughs> When she died, when she died and her stepson took the throne, he was so seething with anger at his stepmother um, that he had all of her monuments crushed, obliterated, by plastering over them. <laughs> and again, the joke is on him, because over time, that did not destroy them. It actually helped preserve them. <laughs> And so this is why historians have a great deal of information about her. One of the ladies in our Monday Bible study taught art in the high school down in Moore County for years. And she said she used to teach her art students about Hatshepsut because there was so much artwork on her uh, burial monument. And it's been preserved because it was plastered over. <laughs> anyway, it's interesting to think that, the, that most of the time that her stepson, that she was in power... And then her stepson came to power. I thought maybe she was holding on to the throne for 21 years, hoping that her adopted son would come back from the desert. Maybe she was holding on to that position so that he would come and take his... She had groomed him to be a leader in the palace as her own son. And then when her stepson came to power, God, I think, kept Moses the whole reign of that guy in the desert until he died. Because if he had come back and appeared before Tutmose III, the stepson of the woman I mean, that he hated, and when her son came back and he approached him and said, let my people go, he would have killed him right on the spot. Okay? You get it? I mean, God would have protected him, yeah. But it was kind of like how Jesus stayed in Egypt as a child until who died? Herod the Great, and then when Joseph and Mary came back and they found that Archelaus was on the throne in Judea, they went up to Nazareth of Galilee. So it's the same thing again here. He stayed in the desert until the Third died. And then God brought him back, and there was a new pharaoh in power then, and his name was Amenhotep, Amenhotep, or whatever it was. I don't speak Egyptian. If you do, come and help me. <laughs> And he was the one to whom 80-year-old Moses said the famous words, Charlton Heston, let my people go. Amenhotep. So, isn't that interesting what history, and I really, I tend to agree with the fact that it was this guy who only had one child and she was a daughter, and that makes sense to me. So it was possibly by way of a childless but fiercely independent princess, Hatshepsut, who indeed matches the biblical account of a woman daring enough to defy her own father's uh, edict that the little Hebrew Joachim was given back to his parents probably for two, maybe to five years. And in that time, what would they have done? Those early childhood development critical years. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. They trained him in who he was and who his God was. And what is so amazing is that Jochebed was even given wages. 
for, for nourishing and nurturing her own son. Now think about that. And it says it in Exodus 2 that she offered wages to Jochebed. She paid Jochebed to nurse her own son. Now Jochebed was a slave. Hatshepsut was a queen, a princess, and she was going to become a queen. She could have commanded her. Do you think that the princess didn't know who Jochebed was when she took baby Moses into her arms? They're not dumb. Women aren't dumb. She knew who that woman was. She knew it was his mother, and yet she paid her. I mean, God does God not do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think? You know, she too was, I thought about this, another deliverance. She was, Jochebed was delivered from a prison of fear for her son. Since the edict was proclaimed, don't you know she lived in a prison of fear for her little son? And when she sent him in that little basket and off he went, you know, and she was praying at home and went, waiting for Miriam to come and tell her what happened. And as soon as she was sent for and went, and she, you know, the princess says, will you take him and nourish him for me? And I'll pay you to do it. She was delivered from that prison of fear. I'm telling you, I live in a prison of fear for my son. A lot of us do for our children. And I want to be released from it. I give it to the Lord, but I take it back again. And we should all really be a little bit fearful about raising children in this day and age, aren't we? But God is faithful. He can do exceeding abundantly. It's obvious from later revelation in Exodus that Moses had an opportunity as a child, the critical years, to be instructed by his own godly parents in the ways of the Lord. The first recorded event in the life of Moses. The first thing he did, besides that important cry, the first thing he did was he went out to his brethren to look upon their burdens. Well, when her son was weaned and when he was ready to begin his new life in the palace, Jochebed brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. And she, Pharaoh's daughter, named him Moses. And then she gave the meaning of the name. I think this is Exodus 2.10. She says, I, I shall, shall, I'll call him Moses because I drew him out of the water. Now how meaningful is that? The one drawn out of the water would later part the water. <laughs> the one drawn out of the water would draw his people out of the land. I'm going to write a poem because I've got this one in my mind. Poor Moses was either, <laughs> either involved with water or sand, never the promised land. <laughs> so uh, isn't it glorious to think about this truth? The daughter of Pharaoh defied her father when she drew a Hebrew boy out of the water when his edict had said to throw the Hebrew boys into the water. And then she brought him right into Pharaoh's own palace, a Hebrew boy slave whose very name reminded not only the Pharaoh but everybody else in Egypt that she had disobeyed her father. <laughs> you know, hi, this is my little boy Moses. I drew him out of the water, even though my father said to throw him into the water. 
So you see what happened to his edict? If he couldn't even get his own daughter to obey it, nobody obeyed it anymore. And thus Moses, as a baby, delivered his people because we know that that edict stopped. The little Jewish baby boys weren't killed anymore because of Pharaoh defying her father. Because it tells us that the nation continued to grow. Praise the Lord. You know how many women were involved in the salvation of Moses, the delivery of Moses? And it was women. It was women. Five, isn't that the number of grace? Who did we have? We had the two midwives. We had Jochebed, his mother. We had his sister Miriam. And we had Hatshepsut. <laughs> Five, isn't that amazing? Isn't it wonderful to be a woman and have compassion and care for the next generation? That's why I don't understand these women that can strap dynamite on their children. Just, just goes beyond what I can even comprehend. Well, did the proud Jews of Stephen's day ever stop to think how ridiculous <laughs> their prejudices were? I mean, in light of their own history, think about this. Abraham was from where? Modern-day Iraq. He was from Mesopotamia. Joseph was the prime minister of Egypt and had an Egyptian wife. And all the patriarchs of Israel spent most of their lives in Egypt and were buried in Samaria. Furthermore, the great deliverer and their great lawgiver, the most honored man of their history, is called by his Gentile name, Moses. We don't know of him as Joachim, do we? <laughs> they called him his Gentile name, Moses. Had they ever really thought about that and their silly prejudices? Well, Stephen tells the other part of Moses' training in verse 22 of Acts 7. He says he was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. And who does that sound like? Running out of time. But who does that sound like? Jesus, wasn't he learned? Didn't he have great wisdom? Didn't he grow up in wisdom and stature and everything as it says at the end of the second chapter of Luke? And talk about mighty and words and deeds. Remember, their own office temple guard who they had sent out to arrest Jesus came back empty-handed and what did they say? Never man spake like this man. And they all knew about his mighty deed. So again, Moses is a picture of Jesus. So with just a look at the circumstances, very briefly as we did this morning, surrounding the birth and the early years of Moses, the evil efforts of Satan to destroy the Israelites were turned completely upside down, inside out, right? Just as God had taken what Joseph's brothers had meant for evil and had turned it to good by seeing to it that Joseph was in a position of power to deliver his people from the palace itself, so did God take care that what Pharaoh had meant for evil, and he used it for good to bring the deliverer into the palace, the one that would one day deliver his people. Now that's 80 years away. But he knew he would be the deliverer he would use, and he also knew he needed a good education. The best that the world had to offer is what God, uh, Moses got. He was going to need that education in order to write five wonderful books that open up our Bibles. And he was going to need that education as far as being a leader. You know, he learned great leadership skills in the palace because she, I think her, his mother, was grooming him to be a pharaoh. 
And was he going to use those leadership skills later on in his life? Did God providentially know that? Boy, was he ever, as he led two million people around a sandy desert for 40 years. <laughs> you need great leadership skills for that. So it's all, you see, it's all in the plan, the providence of God. It's just exceeding, abundant, above all that we could ever ask or think, isn't it? So let's close with that thought in mind, okay? Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that any of us could ask or think about, according to the power that worketh in us, your power, Lord. Unto him, unto you, God, unto your Son, be glory in the church throughout all ages, world without end. We love you, and we, we just ask that we could serve you with all of our heart, soul, and mind every day of the life you have for us in these remaining years. For we pray in your blessed name, Jesus. Amen. God bless you.